Well, in the darkest days of World War II for Great Britain, it looked like Hitler's army was going to conquer the island nation. And Churchill's war cabinet was divided on whether or not to negotiate a peace treaty with Hitler. France was about to fall, and Churchill's government was wavering. He went to work and tried to persuade government leaders to uh, not form a peace treaty, to not try to uh, negotiate with Hitler. And when he met with his outer cabinet, he offered one of the most shocking statements of the 20th century. He said this. He said, I have thought carefully in these last few days whether it was part of my duty to consider entering negotiations with that man. But this means we should become a slave state. I am convinced that every man of you would rise up and tear me down from my place if I were for one moment to contemplate parley or surrender. If this Long Island story of ours is to end, let it end only when each of us lies choking in his own blood upon the ground. Churchill didn't minimize or sugarcoat the threat that was facing Great Britain. And he called each one of them to extraordinary sacrifice. And the people responded. And Hitler's army was resisted. And it changed the course of history in the 20th century. Centuries earlier, Jesus prepared his disciples to go out on mission, to go out on his mission. And indeed, they would have to do battle with evil. We find his long speech in preparation of his disciples in Matthew chapter 10. Among other things, he tells them to heal the sick and to raise the dead, to cleanse the leper, and to drive out demons. He tells them to travel light, not to take any gold or silver, not to take an extra shirt or extra pair of sandals, that they will meet people along the way who will provide for their every need. Jesus told them that if there are people who will not welcome them, to shake the dust off their feet. Another way to say, throw them some shade and move on. Don't try to convince those who are stubborn and who won't receive their message or ministry. He tells them that he is sending them out like sheep among wolves, so they need to be shrewd. And he also tells them to not be afraid of those who can kill the body, and that God will take care of them as they are loyal to God. Indeed, God is loyal to them. Now, that's pretty severe. That's not sugarcoating it. It's not minimizing the threat that his disciples would face. But then he takes it up another notch, if you can imagine that. And he issues an incredible and radical challenge. He says this, listen to this. Do not suppose that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to turn a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies will be the members of his own household. Anyone who loves their father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves their son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever does not take up their cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds their life will lose it. And whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. 
May God bless the reading and the hearing of His Word. This is one of the most radical challenges in the entire pages of Scripture. It may be sound, it sounds familiar to those of us who are familiar with the Bible, but if you step back for a moment and just weigh the words, it is a serious, serious demand. So here's what I want us to do. I want us to look at that demand. I want us to look at the promise. And I want us to look at the example. Jesus said He came to turn family members against each other. What? Some people may hear that and say, Jesus, my family has enough trouble getting along. We don't need you stirring the pot. So we need to unpack the context here a little bit. What does he mean father will turn against son? What does he mean in-laws will become like outlaws? First of all, to some of his hearers, believe it or not, this would have been a familiar echo. Jesus here pulled a quote from the Old Testament prophet Micah. God has always warned His people and cautioned His people that when He is up to something new, that it will cause division even in your closest relationship. The prophet Micah wrote, For a son dishonors his father, a daughter rises up against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, a man's enemies are the members of his own household. That was words from God to the nation of Israel when God was up to something new and how it wouldn't be received. Second, we need to remember that Jesus is preparing His disciples for mission. He is warning them that they're going to face opposition and testing from every corner of life. They're going to face opposition and hostility from without, and they're going to face opposition and hardship and difficulty from within. Even from their closest relationships, they should expect hostility and hardship. Now let that sink in for a moment. Loyalty to Jesus could cause some to be disloyal to you. Let me say it again. Loyalty to Jesus could cause some to be disloyal to you. And when we talk about this idea of loyalty to Jesus, we just don't mean loyalty to the idea of Jesus. And we don't even mean loyalty to the name Jesus, we mean loyalty to Jesus in all that Jesus stands for and all the demands that He places on your life. That as your loyalty to Him, it could cause some to be disloyal to you. It could cause division and disruption in your closest relationships. And this is what Jesus says when He says, I didn't come to bring peace, I came to bring a sword. Now what's that all about? You know, the angels say, peace on earth, goodwill toward men. And Jesus says, I give you my peace. What Jesus is saying here is not a literal sword, but a metaphorical sword that He will divide. His very nature, His very essence will divide people against each other. Which gets to the weight of this demand from Jesus. When Jesus warned His disciples that they could lose their family because of Him, He was not just talking about the actual blood relationships that they had. Family life was the center of Jewish culture. Family life was the source of economic security. If you were thrown out of your family, there was a good chance that you would have to beg for money or that you'd have to be a servant to another family. The family defined someone's position in the broader culture. If one was abandoned or kicked out of their family because of Jesus, their reputation would be scarred. 
The family was the center of theological thought and life. The stories of ancient Israel were told over and over at the family table. If someone was kicked out of their family because of Jesus, their sense of a theological center was lost. And it had to be replaced. And it was replaced by the new community who would tell the stories of Jesus over and over and over. Which is why sometimes this do in remembrance of me. Tell the new covenant story over and over and over. This is one of the reasons the church grew exponentially in the first century. Christians looked after each other, especially when they were abandoned and cast out of their own family. They would have a new family, a new community, new brothers, new sisters. Let me hit the pause button and just reflect on the weight of this a little bit more. 19th and and 20th century Christianity in Western Europe and North America was used by God in powerful ways. Schools, hospitals, home for children were built around the world. Hungry bellies were fed and the sick were healed. Millions came to faith in Jesus because of 19th and 20th century Christianity in Western Europe and North America. There was a time when there was a vibrant church on every corner of every city in this country and, and, and throughout all the rural areas as well. As a matter of fact, uh, as a church planter, I remember studying about the church planting strategy of the United Methodist Church back at the beginning of the 20th century was to simply put a church in every zip code. If you found a post office, you would find a United Methodist Church. With this prevalence of Christianity in Western Europe and North America, in North American culture, came the sense of Christianity is in the water. That it just goes without saying that if you live in Western Europe or North America in the 19th and 20th century, then you were Christian. And it goes hand in hand with the culture. Some church leaders have written extensively about how the Christian life of the culture of 19th and 20th century Western Europe and North America it really has only become an echo of what real, true discipleship means. In other words, Christianity has been so prevalent for some that it's a cultural experience, not necessarily a Jesus experience. It's a culture move, not necessarily a move toward discipleship. And so we hear this demand from Jesus And we can't imagine loyalty to Jesus causing division in our family. Think about that. Many of us would hear this and say, I can't imagine me following Jesus would cause my parents to be upset or my in-laws to be upset. But ask our Christian brothers and sisters in Syria or Iran or China or in many other countries of the world, and they would give you a different picture. They would show you and tell you that Christianity has caused many to be cast out of their family, has caused many to create hardships, but they also could show you a more vibrant, loyal faith in Jesus than what is standard here in our country today. To hear this demand of Jesus, we have to step into the shoes of those for whom Christianity is not the dominant 
part of the culture. Just like when Jesus issued this. Christianity was born on the margins of culture. And often when people chose allegiance to Jesus, they were losing allegiances in other places. So Jesus is saying here, if you love your blood ties, your closest relationships, your economic security, your place in the community, your sense and place of history and what was rather than what God is doing now, if you love all of those things more than Him, you are not worthy to be called His. You're not worthy to be His disciple. And that part of taking up your cross, part of taking up your cross is enduring the rejection and loss. That's why He brings up the cross. It's part of the cross of following Jesus is enduring rejection and betrayal and disloyalty from others. His demand on your life is for you to love Him and honor Him above your family in this text. And all that entails. Ultimately, it's about your priorities. Sky Jathani says this. Let me read this quote. He says, consider it this way. If there really is a God, and if He's the creator of all things, if He created you and me, if everything in existence draws its life from God, and if He's eternal without beginning or end, if we are infinitely dependent upon Him for our existence every moment, every second of our life, and if our connection to this God in one form or another will exist for eternity, then does it not follow that our relationship to this Creator should have supremacy above all other things? What Jesus is trying to say here is this. Do you recognize the supremacy of God over all things? The one who created your mother, your father, your son, your daughter deserves your allegiance more than they do. Do you recognize the supremacy of God over your life? Because those who do not are unworthy of God. They've given their allegiance to some lesser thing. Or if I may paraphrase, they've simply called something or someone else their God. So that's the demand. God above all. What a demand. It's a radical demand. But there also comes a promise. There comes a promise with this demand. Let's look at verse 39 again. It says, whoever finds their life will lose it, and whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. Alan, will you underline the, the last part of that verse for us? Look at that. What is Jesus saying here? Let's talk a little bit about finding and losing. Finding in this sense means valuing someone or something else more than you do Jesus. It is investing your life sense of purpose and meaning in someone or something else. Or you could say that you're going to love something or someone else with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength in such a way that you believe your greatest sense of joy, your greatest sense of peace and security and meaning come from that other person or other thing more than it could God. So it might look like this. You might just draw a list and say, my life's priorities. Maybe for some it might say family, then Jesus, then job, then hobbies. Or for some people, it might look like this. Job, Jesus, 
family, hobbies. Some people may put their job before their family. Or some people who just have it on easy street might say, you know what, hobbies are number one for me. Family's number two. Job's number three. Jesus is number four. And you can just roll your own and make up a list of priorities. And sometimes those priorities have to do with being self-centered and whatever our ego needs are at the time. Now, I've put those lists with the background of that iconic show, Let's Make a Deal, right? Everybody remember that show, Let's Make a Deal? Monty Hall, the host, and now Wayne Grady, the host. You know, there's always a new version of the game shows. Well, you know the premise, right? Door number one, door number two, door number three. Brian, like door number one would be like a 75-pound sack of groceries, right? And door number two would be maybe like a new car, right? But door number three would be something like a billy goat eating a bale of hay, right? Anybody ever see that? I used to love it when they put the goats on it, eating the hay. Well, if you choose any one of those doors we just listed as your life priorities, you're choosing the billy goat eating the hay. Because ultimately, it is not the grand prize. Ultimately, it's not the life that God wants for you. Why? When you place your family or your job or your hobby or whatever ego needs you have in the place that only Jesus should occupy, when you give it your supreme loyalty, when you treat it like your God, it will fail you miserably. It will let you down. Your family, as wonderful as they may be, will disappoint you at times. Your family, as wonderful as they may be, doesn't always know what's right for you. As much as your family is loving and merciful and kind, they can't always redeem the messes that you make out of your life. And get this, it is not good for you to place that burden on them, to give them the God place of your life. It is not good for you. Your life will crash, and it is not good for them. It is not good for a spouse to love their spouse more than they love God. There's no way that spouse can carry that divine burden. Parents, your children can't handle being elevated to supreme status in your life. They can't handle that responsibility. They can't handle that burden. You know, previous generations had to be careful not to practice ancestor worship. Current generations, mine included, have had to be really careful not to practice offspring worship. We've all seen this. Priorities of time and energy begin to be more kid-focused than God-focused. Parents allow their kids' pursuit of success, whether it's academic or athletic or musical, to find their own sense of self-worth when really our our worth should come from our relationship with our Creator, God. This is a classic example of the good being the enemy of the great. It is a good thing to want your kids to be happy and to want them to succeed and to provide opportunities for them. But if that becomes your ultimate, it keeps you from finding the great life that God has for you. 
Same is true for any other relationship, career, spouse, ego, whatever. And it's only when you let go of the misplaced priorities and the misguided loyalties that you can only find the life that God has for you. And get this, giving God your ultimate love and his ultimate place in your life will lead you to be able to love your family completely and in a way that brings honor to God and honor to them. Let me say that again. Giving God your ultimate place will enable you to love your family completely. You see, there's a difference between loving more and loving completely. God says he wants you to love him more. He's number one. He says in in the Ten Commandments, he's a jealous God. Jealous meaning he, he wants what is rightfully his. Okay? Some people say, well, how can God be jealous? Did you ever ask that question? How can God be jealous? Isn't that a sin to be jealous? No, it is not a sin to be jealous over something that is rightfully yours. Something that is rightfully yours is something you hold and you don't want anybody else to take away. What is rightfully God's is first place in your heart and in your life. And when you, give, when you give God that full and complete, most ultimate, it doesn't mean you can't love your family completely. There's a difference between full, more, and complete. When God touches your heart, you're able to love your family in ways that you couldn't ever imagine without Him. You're able to forgive. You're able to reconcile. You're able to show mercy in ways that you could never have without the touch of the Lord. Now, if you're in a family or a relationship that does not honor God, they may not respect or value your allegiance to Him. Jesus doesn't promise that, but He does promise to be loyal and faithful to you. So the demand is your ultimate love and loyalty. The promise is that you will find the life that He wants for you. And that you'll be able to love and have the capacity to love completely. I mentioned at the outset there's an example. Jesus warns His disciples that they may be abandoned by their family because of Him. He knew that experience. On the cross when Jesus took on the sins of the world, there was a moment that must have seemed like an eternity to him. There was a moment when he felt forsaken and completely and utterly abandoned by God because the sins of the world were upon his shoulders. The wrath of God was upon him and God looked away and he yelled out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Abandoned by God. He was. What an incredibly painful experience this had to be for him, forsaken from the Father. But he did it for us. 
He did it so that we can be reconciled to God. And so that we may find the fullness of His joy and His life. And thankfully, the story doesn't end there. Once He paid for the sins of the world, He was raised to new life. And now He sits in close communion at the right hand of His Father. This not only gives us new life, it gives us hope that the most challenging and difficult circumstances in our relationships can be restored if God is allowed to have God's way. So a few gentle questions as we wrap up this morning. Do you love Jesus more? Do you love Jesus more than anything? Anyone? When your priorities and your good priorities go head to head, does Jesus get first place? I hope we will all be people who will say that we love Jesus more. More than anyone. More than anything. Amen? And amen. Let's pray together. God, we thank You that You care so much about Your world, Your mission. You care so much about us that You would place this demand on our lives. Because God, if if You didn't love us so much, You wouldn't demand this kind of loyalty. You would not. You wouldn't care what we cared about. But God, you do. You care about our hearts. And you know our hearts only find their true self, their true meaning, their true rest, their true joy, their true peace when they are completely aligned with your heart. And when you have full and ultimate first place in our lives. So God, this demand is because You love us incredibly. So thank You for that love. Lord, there are many things in our lives that pull us apart from You. They compete for our love. They compete for our attention. They compete for our priority. Lord, give us the faith today to confess that sin before You. Give us the honesty, the vulnerability, the transparency, God. Lord, also give us the faith to know that if we put You first, even if it causes others to forsake us, that if we put You first, You're going to take care of us. And You're going to have our back no matter what. God, thank You for Your loyalty to us as your people. Now help us to be loyalty to you. And as we leave this place today, as we take the words that we have heard from your Scriptures, may we be faithful and loyal to you, our Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen.